Tychicus, our dearly loved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me so that you may be informed. I'm sending him to you for this very reason, to let you know how we are and to encourage your hearts. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who have undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. So tonight we part ways with the church at Ephesus for a while. Of course, for them, it wasn't the end. They had uh, quite a few decades of history yet to experience. Closing this letter, we remember that Paul did not expect to ever see his Ephesian friends again. Back when uh, he had left them, he was traveling uh, back to Jerusalem and And at one point, he called the Ephesian elders to him in Acts 20, and he says, hey, I'm never going to see you guys again. And so uh, we're five years past Acts 19 and 20, and he doesn't think he's ever going to see them again. But even though he didn't expect to see them again, Paul very much expected God to continue his work of grace in their church. That's what the whole letter has been about, the things that God wants to do through saved individuals, through his church the incredible building, the incredible growth, the incredible uh, plan that the Lord works through his people. Uh, Let's look at this beginning in verse 21. Tychicus, our dearly loved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me so that you may be informed. Paul wrote while under house arrest, waiting to testify before Caesar Nero. After finishing his letter, he put it in the hands of this fellow Tychicus to personally deliver. But he didn't give him just one letter. On this trip, Tychicus would also deliver the New Testament letters of Colossians and Philemon, and also Paul's non-canonical letter to the Laodiceans that we read about in Colossians chapter four. So who was this Christian mailman? He's mentioned directly five times in the Bible. He may be referred to another time, we can't be sure. He was a convert from Asia Minor. Some scholars believe he actually was from the city of Ephesus and saved during Paul's three-year stay there in Acts 19. He became a close friend and ministry partner of Paul's. He traveled with Paul on some of his journeys, and in fact, he left Ephesus with Paul in Acts 20 with the group that was going to carry and deliver financial aid to needy Christians in Jerusalem. As Ephesians closes, it's about 62 AD, Tychicus is with Paul in Rome. Now he's free, but Paul is bound in a chain, connected to a Roman soldier around the clock. But here with letters in hand, Tychicus would travel by foot to Asia Minor to visit multiple churches in the area. Five or seven years later, when Paul was imprisoned a second time, we see Tychicus is by his side again. Paul would send him once more to Ephesus, this time with the letter we know as 2 Timothy. Paul had Tychicus fill in for Timothy as a minister there so that Timothy could go to Rome and visit Paul before his death and bring him a coat and some study materials. It's possible that Paul also sent Tychicus to relieve Titus with that letter too, so that Titus could come for a visit. It was either going to be Tychicus or a fellow named Artemis. That's what it says in the book of Titus. He says, hey, I'm going to send one of these guys to you. So we see Tychicus going back and forth here and there, dropping off letters, filling in for this guy or that guy, carrying funds to help hungry people. 
If he had a job description, I suppose it would be gopher. Uh, that's, that's, you know, but there's no record of him performing miracles or planting churches or preaching to thousands. Luke doesn't pull him aside and, and tell some of his personal stories of which he must have had quite a few. But reading the verses in the New Testament that mention him, we get such a great sense of how valuable and meaningful and wonderful his regular faithfulness really was. Yes, Paul wrote the letter, but there he is, bound by a chain, stuck under house arrest. If there's no Tychicus, whoever would read the letter? There had to be someone to deliver. There had to be someone faithful to go who was willing to, to carry this message and, and give it to those who needed it. He stood and walked in the gap, not just for the Ephesians, but in all these other situations, for Titus, for Timothy, for the Ephesians, for the Colossians, for Philemon, and all sorts of other things that we don't even know about. His helpfulness, his willingness to do small things, to carry a letter, his availability and reliability, it really extended the reach of Paul's ministry. He was an agent of God's help and relief and wisdom and provision and truth and so much more just by being what to the world would look like a gopher, to the world would look like being a mailman. But he wasn't just a mailman. You know, I get packages a lot, like I'm sure most of you do. I don't think I could pick out my regular Amazon driver from a lineup of one. My UPS driver, I can. Who here has the UPS driver that's like jacked? He's like, all, he's like a bodybuilder. That guy I could pick out. I, I, and he's, you know what? He's, I don't know if you've interacted with him. He's super nice. He, he helped us the other day when the kids saw there was like a hammer in the middle of the road. It was a whole thing. Anyway, he's great. Give him a, give him a friendly hello next time. But, but Tychicus wasn't just a mailman. Uh, he didn't just drop the letter and move on. He also told them all the news about Paul. That was a major part of why Paul was sending him. The word there where he says, the news about me, it's a word that means who, what, which, and why. It's, it's the kind of a catch-all word. He's gonna tell you all the stuff about me. Tychicus would give personal, uh, uh, knowledgeable testimony about how Paul was doing and what God was doing through Paul's life and imprisonment. In the book of Acts, you might remember, it closes with this uh, wonderful verse. It closes with this sentence. Paul stayed two whole years in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And this is the time that we're talking about. Remember, most of the recipients of, uh, of Ephesians, most of the people in the church didn't know Paul personally. He knew some of them, but it had been quite a few years. And so most of them didn't know Paul personally. And so Tychicus could be a, a, an expert witness, an eyewitness to tell them what, what was really true. He could tell them that Paul wasn't making things up, that Paul wasn't faking, that the words he was telling them really were true, that God really was fulfilling his promises, that God really does give strength, that God really does scatter his people to spread the gospel, that the gospel really does have power to save. And we see that Paul wanted the Ephesians to know these things. He said, I'm sending Tychicus so that you may be informed. Paul was an open book to the churches he ministered to. And this has been a major theme of the letter, of course. Not that Paul was an open book, but the theme of being informed. 
God wants his people to understand and to grow in knowledge and to apprehend more and more of the truth of God and the power of God for their day-to-day living. God wants you to be informed, informed of his truth, sharing in his wisdom, growing in your understanding of his heart and his work and your place in it. That's been just such a major theme of the whole book of here's who God really is, here's God, what God has really done, here's what God has really planned, and here's your place in that plan, and here's how you walk with him in that plan. And so much of it was about, oh, Paul just praying, I pray that you would have the, the, your heart filled with understanding and your eyes to opened to, to apprehend these things and see what is true and see what God has done and see how God is leading you. Verse 22 says, I'm sending him to you for this very reason, to let you know how we are and to encourage your hearts. From a human perspective, Tychicus might not seem very important when you think of apostles or figures in the book of Acts. I'm guessing, like me, that his name probably doesn't even register in the top, certainly not the top 10, 20, 30, right? He's probably one of those guys that like, if somebody said his name, I guess I've heard that before, but he doesn't seem important from the world's perspective, from the human way of looking at things. He might look like a gopher to the world, but in reality... His service to Paul and to the church and to the Lord was world-changing. He was delivering the, the very word of God to them, which was the first step in having it delivered to us. He was also, we see here, an encourager. Paul said, I'm sending him so that he can encourage your hearts. It's the same term that Jesus used of God the Holy Spirit when he said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor, that's the word, to be with you forever. He's the spirit of truth. Tychicus was doing what the Holy Spirit was sent to do. Tychicus was full of the spirit and therefore was used by the spirit to do the work of the spirit. That's what God wants to do in your life as well if you're a Christian here tonight. And this is a wonderful example of of what God desires for each of his people. 2 Corinthians was a letter that Paul wrote to a different church, and he said in that letter, the God of all comfort comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. And so that word that Paul keeps using, comfort, over and over again in those verses in 2 Corinthians is the same word used to describe what Tychicus was gonna do. He's an object lesson for us of what God desires his people be doing for one another. Encourage, build up, come alongside to help. Do the work of the Holy Spirit who fills us and invigorates us to be a part of the work of God. So we say, oh, you know, I, I know for myself, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I'm praying to the Lord, Lord, I, you know, spirit, I, I need the Spirit to minister to me and to fill me and to comfort me. And, and the Lord wants to do that. And he says, but also I want you to be an agent of that gracious comfort, encouragement, in the lives of others. You're filled with the Spirit so that you can do the work of the Spirit. And so on the one hand, the job Tychicus was given was relatively straightforward, pretty routine. You're gonna deliver a letter. You're gonna carry it, give it. Uh, That's kind of the job. And then when they ask how Paul's doing, why don't you let them know? Deliver, share some news. But on the other hand, this wasn't necessarily an easy thing to do. This was a long trip dangerous and difficult. Even if there wasn't spiritual warfare, it would still be dangerous and difficult. It didn't come with a lot of recognition or fanfare. 
but it was so needful, it was so beneficial, it was so fruitful to have him do this sort of regular thing through regular faithfulness. Because he was available, because he was reliable, because he was gonna see through regular faithfulness to the end, Tychicus was able to represent both God and Paul to these Christians in Asia Minor. Ephesians 6.23 says, Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Ephesians is a blatantly Trinitarian book. We see both Father and Son here. In chapter one, all three persons of the Trinity are listed in a verse together. You can just kind of keep that in your pocket in case you need it later on. But what God wants for his people here is peace and love and a growing faith. Uh, This is, again, in many ways, Paul's just recapping what he's already said over the last six chapters. This is what God desires. God does not want you to spend your life full of fear or confusion. He doesn't want us to waste our days in constant aggravation or discontent, not at all. His desire for your life is peace, and he calls you to peace. Peace means tranquility, freedom from worry, harmony. You know, the city of Ephesus was a city full of tension. We've seen some of that in our studies throughout this book. And and you had all of these different cultures coming together. It was a crossroads city, and it was people coming from all over the Roman Empire, and you had Romans and Jews and pagans, and you had slaves from as far as they think like Scotland and, and places from all over the world, and there was all sorts of religions and cults we, that we've heard about. There were at least 25 or 30 different pagan temples in the city. That's how many they've uncovered so far in archaeology. The great harbor of Ephesus, so important uh, for their markets and for their travel, it was constantly silted by the river that fed into it, and it was constantly threatening commerce and the economics of the area. In fact, in different times in history, they had to literally move the whole city of Ephesus to a different spot because they couldn't keep back the silting of the harbor. There was a gladiator school in Ephesus and many fights in the theater, and so it was a place of extreme violence and extreme uh, uh, wickedness in the entertainment that, that people would go and watch. There was, of course, political unrest. This was the time of revolts, of assassinations, of emperors perhaps burning their own capitals to the ground. Uh, That's the climate in which Ephesians is delivered, right? And in a climate like that, all of those things, all of those tensions and more, what does God say? He says, my plan for my people is peace. And it didn't necessarily mean that there would be always peace in their circumstances. The Ephesians knew that firsthand. What happened when Paul went to Ephesus? There was a crazy riot. People were being beaten. I mean, it was was a dangerous time to be a Christian. And God said, yeah, but, but... My plan for you, my calling for you is peace, spiritual peace, harmony when the world is full of dissonance, tranquility when the world is full of animosity, rest and well-being in your heart between you and the Lord. That's God's desire for us. That's God's calling on your life. Paul reminded them that this life-changing, countercultural love and peace is from one place, One person, it's from God of heaven and earth, from Jesus Christ, who is Lord. It's found nowhere else. 
You cannot lay hold of it in any other place, by any other pursuit, from any other person. You see, in Ephesus, if you walked around Ephesus during this time, the message was very clearly, very blatantly broadcast to you that Caesar is Lord, that Caesar is in charge, that all good things come from Caesar. The emperor cult, which was so prominent and influential, had great sway in the city. Uh, As an example, at one point, uh, by the second century, a prominent citizen of Ephesus built this fountain in the city, and it had a great statue of Caesar with his foot on the globe. That this is the person in charge. That this is God, this man who sits on a throne in Rome. By the way, the Romans knew that the earth was round, his foot's on a globe. (laughs) So that's kind of interesting. Ephesian Christians walking downtown would see a great sculpture that you can see still today of the goddess Nike. Yes, that Nike, holding the wreath of victory in her hand and palm branches in in her other hand. And so the messaging was very bold, very in your face, Uh, uh, such a great contrast that the world was saying, this is what's true, this is who is God, this is how you get victory, this is how you get greatness, this is how you X, Y, and Z. And every day, the Christians got to wake up and say, our crucified Savior is alive, and I don't have any sculptures of him, but I'm, I have this opportunity to choose to believe God rather than man, to walk with him in spite of the world's flow. And so Paul encouraged them. He says, listen, love and peace, the things that you need, the power you need, the defense and provision, all these things that you need, it comes from one place. God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, that's where it comes from. Not a mingling of, well, what if I had a little bit of the you know, the emperor Colton with this, and this was a great strain when the emperor started saying, hey, you have to pinch incense to me, otherwise you're gonna be in some real trouble. And so the, these Christians, and they had to make some hard choices every single day. And even if they didn't have to make hard choices circumstantially, they were being slammed by a culture that demanded a choice of who you would believe, of the path you were gonna take, of what kind of life you were gonna live. And Paul's encouraging them, have faith and receive the peace of God that he wants to offer you, the love of God, all the promises and the power that he talked so passionately about in this whole letter. Remember those first opening chapters, just how excited Paul was about salvation, excited about the work of God and the power of God, and so excited to share that all of these things have been freely given, not just to apostles, not just to Jews, but to Gentiles, to everybody, to anyone who wants to be part of it. The Lord says, yes, come and receive the riches of my inheritance. And so uh, the Lord would follow through on his promises and provision. And Paul, as he closes the letter, he he just wants to drive that home. Have faith. The Lord will follow through on what he has said. Verse 24, grace be with all who have undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. All of the victory and all of the peace and all of the love and all of the spiritual strength and the unity, all of these things were possible because of God's grace and only because of God's grace. You can't earn it, you can't deserve it, you can't buy it, you can't trade for it, it's all of God's grace. A few verses earlier, Paul spoke of the armor of God. If you were here for those studies, just seeing the the armor going on to the Christian and we remember those images that we were given of, of evil forces and the battles coming our way. 
We heard about our everlasting inheritance and our place in God's eternal cosmic work. We've seen how much God loves us and his affection for us. And it's all from his grace. Because of God's grace, he loves us and delights to pour his favor and his kindness into us so that we can experience life more abundantly. That's the grace of God. God who could be doing whatever he wanted. God who could just reboot the whole thing and say, hey, that, that system didn't work. Let's try a new one. He says, no, out of my loving grace, I just love these people so much. I'm unwilling to depart with them. I'm going to chase after them. And then when they turn to me, I'm going to install in their lives all kinds of power. I'm going to do all these things for them so that they can have life more abundantly. God's grace. Compare that to what, what, what Rome's great warriors experienced. I spoke of the gladiator school and uh, they had a lot of gladiator fights in Ephesus. In fact, they're, they've discovered a mass gladiator grave. Uh, man, those guys suffered in the arena. They, they can you know, see what kind of injuries they sustained and how many injuries they sustained. Um, but those gladiators, before beginning their fights, they would say, hail emperor, we who are about to die salute you. And then their emperor forced them to destroy one another, Right? And so that, that's the contrast. You know, we strap on the armor of God. Why? So that we can have life more abundantly. The Roman gladiator straps on their armor. Number one, they were usually forced into it. They were either convicts or slaves oftentimes. They were forced into this combat whether they wanted to or not. And then the purpose of their existence in the arena was to die, was to be butchered, was to be brutalized. And, and what about our God? The Christian's king is no Roman emperor. The old hymn says, the king of love our shepherd is, whose goodness faileth never. And, and we just always want to remind ourselves. There's a world around us. In many ways, it's not as blatantly idolatrous as the Roman world. It's not any less idolatrous. It's just the billboards look a little different than they did back then. And we need to remember the difference between the gods of the world and the God of heaven and earth. We need to remember the difference of the paths that these lives take, the, the path away from God or the path with God where he walks with us and we walk with him. He, his goodness never fails. Now for the third time in four verses, Paul mentions love, he mentions agape. Here he calls the Ephesians, and us, of course, to an undying love. Your version may say love in sincerity or incorruptible. Linguists tell us that the words literally read in incorruption, incorruptibility, immortality. You could also use the term unfading love. This was Paul's closing prayer for these precious people. He loved them, the Lord loved them, and this was his, his, his final word, his closing prayer was, you know, uh, that they would grow and flow with God's grace as their love for Christ endured day after day. That's, that was his prayer for them. Of course, most of you know what, what I'm gonna say next. 30 or 35 years after this letter was read in their assembly, a new letter was delivered. This time it wasn't written by Paul, it was from Christ himself. You can read it, Revelation chapter two. There the Lord commends the church at Ephesus for their good works, for their unwillingness to tolerate evil people. They had good doctrine. They had good programs. They endured hardships. They had not grown weary in doing Christian things. That's no easy feat, especially in a city like Ephesus. But they no longer loved 
Jesus Christ. It takes our breath away to read that letter, to see this magnificent church where Jesus is like, you do this good and this good and this good and this good. You're like, oh man, this is a church I wanna go to. And he says, and by the way, you don't love me anymore. And it's, it's mind-blowing. The Ephesians teach us uh, you know, as we track their progress and as we see them from beginning to not necessarily the end, we don't know when the church was officially over, but end of the book at least, Revelation 2, the Ephesians teach us that loving God isn't just about doing things. It's not just about believing certain uh, truths. It's not just about serving. Serving is part of it, a major part of it. Enduring is part of it, a major part of it. Defending orthodoxy is part of it. Suffering patiently is part of it. But at the base level, our hearts must belong to the Lord individually and corporately. Our hearts must be attached to Jesus Christ personally, passionately, affectionately. Their love had faded. And from what we can tell, it faded imperceptibly over time. The church at Ephesus in the book of the Revelation is a church we would go to. We wouldn't go to the church at Laodicea, right? We wouldn't go to some of these other churches. We would look at the church at Ephesus and say, like, this church is on top of it. Look at all the things these people do. Look at their great teaching. Look at their this, that, and the other thing. Look at how they endure suffering. And Jesus said, that you are doing those things, and I commend you for it, but you don't love me anymore. And because you don't love me, I don't really care about the other stuff. I'm gonna come and take away your lampstand unless you repent and return to your first love. What happened in between Ephesians 6.24 and Revelation 2 verse one? The truth is, historically speaking, we know quite a bit about the church at Ephesus and it's a pretty interesting story. During the first century, Ephesus was one of the largest centers of Christian activity in the Gentile world. The church was world famous for its godly activity. If I said right now, think of a famous church, and you think of one, yeah, that would have been Ephesus at the time. Famous for good reasons. <laughs> I don't want you to think of a famous church for bad reasons. Right, but think of a church that, oh yeah, that church, they do all kinds of things, and lots of people know their church's name. We know their church's name. They don't know our church's name. That idea. That was Ephesus. They, they were the center of Christian activity in the Gentile world. Timothy became their pastor for many years. In fact, when Paul wrote First and Second Timothy, that's where he was ministering at. But during those Timothy years, false teachings started to creep in from the outside. It wasn't Timothy teaching them. It was, it was people from the outside or within the church starting to teach these false doctrines. And Paul warned Timothy and told Timothy, hey, here's what you should do about that. Of course, we remember that Paul predicted that very thing would happen back in Acts 20, so many years before. He said, hey, this is what's gonna happen. From among your own ranks, people of these wolves are gonna come in and try to pull disciples off to themselves. And that started to happen. Paul was set free from his first imprisonment where he wrote this book. Paul was set free, didn't die before Caesar Nero. Church history teaches that he went preaching the gospel as far as Spain. And then on his way back, he returned once more to the city of Ephesus. And so uh, he did get to see some of his friends again. It was maybe five or seven years after he wrote the letter that we're concluding tonight. Shortly after that next visit to Ephesus, he was arrested again, and that time he would be martyred for his faith. 
A few years after Paul died, when the Jews revolted against Rome, Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. And around that time, the apostle John came to live in Ephesus. And church history suggests, some sources record, that in fact, John brought Jesus's mother Mary with him and that they lived in Ephesus. He lived for quite some time, Mary for a few years. There's in fact a traditional site you can visit where it's believed that they lived. While in Ephesus, John wrote his gospel and then 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. During this time, it seems there was some sort of split within the church there in the city, something John wrote about a little in his letters. In the mid-90s, John was exiled to the island of Patmos. That's just about 60 miles off the coast of Ephesus. While John was there, Timothy was still the pastor at the church of Ephesus, an old man by this point. He continued to preach the gospel in the city, and he was... uh, at one point preaching against idolatry there in the city and he was beaten to death for his faith. The church father, Ignatius, who lived and wrote at that time, the late 90s, he records that Onesimus then took over as pastor uh, at Ephesus. Onesimus, the, the guy referenced in the book of Philemon. And really, this would have been a remarkable full circle thing for Onesimus, this friend of Paul's, because Onesimus was once a slave, right? He escaped from his master Philemon. He, at some point, met Paul, became a Christian, became a close friend of Paul. Paul figured out, oh, he was a runaway slave. He told him, you need to go back and be a slave again in the house of Philemon. And here's what's amazing. When Tychicus came to Ephesians with Paul's original letter, Onesimus was with him. We see that recorded in the book of Colossians in chapter four. And so he would have been in this incredible object lesson, by the way. Remember a few passages ago where Paul said, hey, if you're a slave, remain a slave and be a slave as unto the Lord. Be the best slave that you can be. That, that's quite a teaching. And, uh, and they would have been like, who's this guy standing over here? Oh, that's a, a Christian who's a slave who's going back to be a slave. He was free, but he's voluntarily going to to put himself back into slavery because that's what the Lord has called him to do. And so, remarkable. But now, in the 90s, here's Onesimus, uh, free, and he becomes the pastor of the church of Ephesus. After a few years of exile, John was released from Patmos. He was quite old by this time. He returned to Ephesus with the revelation, and it was there that he delivered Jesus' letter to this beloved church. We don't know how they responded. The city of Ephesus was destroyed in 262 by the Goths. But we don't know what happened between 95 AD and 262. We don't know if they ran back to the Lord in first love or if they continued in their lovelessness. What we do know, what's very clear and obvious, is that the Ephesians had everything they needed for growth and for success and for victory and for just dynamic Christian living. Think about it. They had received a teaching ministry from Paul, Apollos, Timothy, John, Onesimus, Tychicus, and probably others we don't know about. All of these New Testament writings were there in in Ephesus. Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the Gospel of John, the Revelation. Ephesus was the epicenter for all of those books. The church became prominent and influential 
they had room to grow and everything that they needed to succeed and to be just the, the most faithful, the most loving, the most dynamic church uh, in all the first century. And so what happened? Well, the problem was within. The problem was in the heart. You know, research shows that one in 13 Americans has an undiagnosed disease. Don't count around the room right now. Maybe it's me. I'll take it, right? I, I was that guy. I had a hole in my heart and I didn't know about it. So, so 12 of you are safe now, right? And I don't, somebody else has to take the other one. But one in 13 Americans has a disease they don't even know about. And it's gonna cause a problem. The Ephesians, they didn't lack anything they needed, right? They weren't lacking in available nutrition or provision or anything like that, spiritually speaking. The problem was within their own hearts. There was a slow drift away from love, real love, personal love, a drift away from love into programs, into gestures, into the motions of Christian activity that seemed good but had no real passion for Jesus. These Ephesians who had been saved out of such strange pagan culture, pagan religion, they had now, by Revelation 2, become cultural Christians. Really, really good cultural Christians, but just cultural Christians to the point that Jesus said, I'm not even gonna recognize you as a church if you don't make some dramatic changes here. It's not just a sad story, it's a serious warning. The Ephesian church was a powerhouse of godliness, of orthodox teaching, of truth, of activity, of growth for decades. This was the church you wanted to go to. But in the end, we see they were in a position where the Lord had to say, I'm about to remove your lampstand unless you repent. You have to make a complete about face and, and return to me. If it could happen to this church, it could happen to any church. And so no matter what lies ahead in our culture, in our you know, history, as it were, we don't know exactly what lies ahead, but no matter what, our personal and corporate focus should be to walk with the Lord in love. Real, personal, passionate love for him, love for his word, love for his leading, love for his people. As we love God, Paul says, then his grace flows in us. And when grace is operating in our lives and in our midst, we see what's possible. Ephesians has shown us what is possible in the life of a saved person when they walk worthy with the Lord and discover what he has laid out for them to discover? This isn't some new idea. It's been God's plan all along. That was the opening of the book. Hey, this has been God's plan all along. His plan for his people. Paul talked about God's plan for his church. And he says, the Lord chose us in him before the foundation of the world to lavish his grace on us so that we could be saved and transformed and assigned in his purposes and then put on display forever to prove his greatness and kindness. That's the plan. Who wants in? That's the question of Ephesians. How could we stop loving a God that is described on the pages in Ephesians? A God who does this a God who has done so much for us and made so many plans for us and provides such great riches for us and is so involved in our lives and so interested in our lives and so present with us. How could we stop loving a God like this? Well, we'll we will stop if we don't remind ourselves of what is true. 
true of who God is, true of what he has said, true of what he has done. And so as we grow in our knowledge, our love should always be increasing, not fading, but becoming richer and deeper and more alive. As we hear who God is, hear what he has said, hear what he has done, hear what he has planned and believe him and then walk with him wherever he leads.